I'm in the dark here, blinded by the light, a shot in the dark. In the light of day, he went to the dark side. I saw the light. She went dark on me. Our world, our, our language, they're full of images of darkness and light. We don't really need to have it explained to us. We understand the significance of light and darkness intuitively. These are common tools of the visual arts, right? Painters use light and shadow to communicate ideas and, and to move the viewer. Movie makers use darkness to create fear, right? The scary clown from It. It doesn't stand in the middle of a brightly lit field. It's down in that creepy sewer where you can't see anything. Uncertainty and tension rise in the darkness. Movie makers will use light to add sentiment or to, to reveal truths about characters. Pretty much every world religion uses the categories of light and darkness in its symbolism in some way or another. All of that should come as no surprise. After all, the Bible tells us that God's very first act of creation was to shine light into darkness. The first of God's words recorded for us in Scripture are, let there be light. The first acts of God recorded for us in Scripture are the creation of light, right? the expulsion of darkness, we're told that that pleases God. In Genesis 1, he sees the light and he says that it's good. So it should, again, come as no surprise that when the Apostle John wanted to communicate the character of God to his readers in his first letter, he turns to the image of light. Now, you may remember if you were here last week, it seems that the letter of 1 John was written by the Apostle John, so one of the, the members of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Most likely it was written in the early 90s AD uh, to the churches in and around what we would call modern-day Turkey. And it seems that the letter is meant to address false teachers, a series of false teachings that had, had infiltrated the church and led to the departure of a significant number of people. And so in our passage for this morning that Tori just read for us, we're going to see John begins to address some of those false teachings in terms of light and darkness. As we look at these verses, we'll see the apostle begins with a statement about God, about his character, and then he unpacks what that means for us. And so I'd like to make that our outline this morning. First, let's see what John tells us about God, specifically that God is light, and then let's see how we should live concerning or considering that truth. If God is in fact light, then how do we live as his people? So first, let's see that God is light. You see that there in verse five where we read, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you remember what we saw last week, John reminded the church that he had, he says, testified to them and proclaimed to them eternal life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he told us that God's son took on human flesh at his incarnation and was made manifest among us. 
And we saw that the credibility of John's message was bolstered by the fact that he had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He had heard Jesus with his own ears. He had touched Jesus with his own hands. And so here in verse 5, John has a further message that he wants to proclaim to them. And again, he's at pains to make it clear this is not, this, this message doesn't have its source in his imagination. This is not his own thoughts or opinions that he's sharing, but it's the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. He says there in verse 5, this is the message he heard from him. We're not sure if he's referring to a specific lesson that Jesus taught the disciples. There's nothing recorded for us in the Gospels that's exactly like this. It could be that he's just sort of generally summarizing the thrust of Jesus' teaching. But the message that he heard from Jesus is clear there at the end of verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John tells us here that God is light. This is an idea with deep roots in other parts of the Bible. So in Psalm 27, verse 1, the psalmist declares, The Lord is my light and salvation. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 20, the prophet can tell the people of Judah that the Lord will be your everlasting light. In Micah 7, 8, the, the prophet can warn his enemies that the Lord will be a light to me. Broadly speaking, the metaphor of light seems to have two senses in the Bible. At first, it's used to indicate knowledge or or revelation. So in Proverbs 6, verse 23, the, the father can encourage his son to listen to the instructions that he gives. He says, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 105 can say to the Lord, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In Ephesians 5, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes to the church there and he says, When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Right? You get the idea. When there's light, you can see. When there's light, you can understand what's happening. You know which way to go and how to proceed. So this image of light has the sense of of knowledge or, or revelation. The second sense in which light is often used in the Bible is moral purity. So again, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, verse 20, he warns the wicked. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You see the parallel there. Evil and good are held up in parallel to darkness and light. In Isaiah's usage, light stands in for that which is good. John himself writes in his gospel account in John 3, verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. See, John says people prefer darkness to light because their works are evil. Right? The moral purity represented by the image of light, that's not what wicked people want. So when John says here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, 
He's pointing us to the union of these qualities in the character of our creator. He is light. He is moral perfection, utter purity. He is light in the sense that he's truth and knowledge and revelation. John presses this point home there at the end of verse 5. Not only does he affirm for us the fact that God is light, but he denies the opposite in the strongest terms. Not only is God light, but in him, he says, there is no darkness at all. Not only is God light, he is nothing but light. He's not a mixture of light and other things. John says, in him is no darkness. That is to say, there's no dishonesty, no deceit, no falsehood or confusion or uncertainty in God or from God. Brothers and sisters, this has serious implications for us. Listen to what Paul writes to Titus at the very outset of his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul's saying there that we have the hope of eternal life. Why? Because God promised it before the ages began. And he proclaims it through the message of the apostles, right? That sounds a lot like what we thought about last week at the beginning of John's letter. And Paul points out there, importantly for our purposes, he says, God never lies. There's no darkness in him. And so Paul says we can have rock-solid confidence that he will do everything that he's promised to do, including giving you eternal life through his Son. The author of Hebrews adds this in Hebrews 6.18. He says that so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers facing persecution, facing pressure to leave their Christian faith and go back to the Judaism that they'd come out of. And he tells them that God has made them a promise and he's sworn it with an oath, right? That promise and that oath, those are the two unchangeable things that he mentions. And then he tells us, God cannot lie. And as a result, we have strong encouragement for hope. There is no darkness in God. He never lies. He is light. And so what he says is true. He has revealed his salvation and you can trust him. Right, if I make you a promise, you have to evaluate whether or not I'm going to keep it based on a whole bunch of different things. Right, how honest do you think I am as a person? Is it possible that I could be lying to you? How committed am I? Is it possible that I might be waylaid on my way to keeping my promise? Is it possible I might decide that something else is more important? How capable 
am I? Can I, in fact, do the thing that I've promised to do? Right? All of those factors combine to give you some sense of how much you can trust me and what I say. But here John says, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. There, there is nothing in him that is not truth and trustworthiness and commitment to his promises. And so you can be certain that he will do what he said he will do. That he will give eternal life to anyone who comes to him in, through faith in Christ. And listen, if, if you're presently not a follower of Christ, if you haven't come to God through faith in Jesus to receive that gift of eternal life, friend, do you realize you're staking your eternal soul on the hope that what John says here actually isn't true? That there is somehow some darkness in God, that he's not really completely truthful and reliable, that he in fact won't do what he said he's going to do, that he will not judge you, that he will not hold you accountable for your rebellion against him. Friend, don't make that mistake. God is light. You can believe what he says. Trust him and put your faith in Christ today. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That means that not only is he perfectly true and honest, but he's not in the least tempted by evil. Sin, wickedness, cruelty, perversion, hatred, all of those things belong to the darkness. And God is not tempted at all. They find no place to tether into God. There is no darkness in him. Now, you might think, I, I kind of already knew that. But friend, if you stop to think about what good news that is, that the omnipotent creator of all things is light, and that there's no darkness in him whatsoever, think about what it would be like if that weren't true, if God were capricious or fickle or partial or full of hatred. What if he were needy or, or touchy or irritable? How awful would it be to live in that world? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that means we can trust him, even when things seem to be going terribly wrong. We can trust him with our lives and with our future. Even, even when we're confused by circumstances, we can be certain that whatever it is has come to us from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father in whom there is no darkness at all. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can pray to God even in the worst circumstances. Remember how Abraham responded to the news of the impending destruction of the city of Sodom. He wasn't so much concerned that God was going to judge the wicked. He understood that. But to him, the idea that God would destroy the righteous along with the wicked was intolerable. And so Abraham prayed in Genesis 18, verse 25. He said to the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And you know, God responds, he's not mad at Abraham. He doesn't rebuke his impudence. 
He simply grants Abraham's request as a way of saying, yes, of course I'm going to do what is just and right. Christian, that's the answer ultimately to all of our questions. What happens to babies who die in infancy before they have an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel? The judge of all the earth will do what is right. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What happens to people in foreign lands who have never had an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond? You can trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Will my kids be okay? What's going to happen in the future? We can't know. But what we do know is that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Before we move on, I just want to point out that when John says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he's pointing us yet again to the incarnation, the appearance, the manifestation of the Lord Jesus. Remember last week we saw that Jesus is the word of life, made manifest in a way that John could hear and, and touch and see. And what we see when we look at John's gospel is that he understands that Jesus is the ultimate and perfect manifestation of the light of God. He is light in human flesh. So John chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, it says, In him, that is in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, throughout his earthly life, Jesus lived as light. He taught the truth. He refuted the errors of the Pharisees. He rebuked the hypocrite and the oppressor. He did acts of mercy and kindness. If you want to know what it means to say that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then you can look to the life and the teaching and the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He is the light of the world. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. With that said, let's look at our, our second point to consider this morning, and that is how do we then live as God's people? If that's true of our God, how ought we to live? Let me point out two things that I think John tells us in response to that question. First, he says we must walk in the light. Look there in verses 6 and 7. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you may be able to see that John is going after his opponents here, these false teachers that had split the church. They claimed that they had fellowship with God. Right, if you remember again back to last week at the end of verse 3, John made the claim that he and the other apostles had fellowship. They had an intimate, saving relationship with God the Father and God the Son. He even said that we could have that same fellowship with him and with 
uh, the Lord Jesus, if we embraced the apostolic testimony to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But here, these false teachers were claiming that they were the ones who had fellowship with God. They were saying they were the ones who could provide the teaching that would enable you to have a relationship with God. And so John simply points out, if you make that claim, that you have an intimate friendship with God, with the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. If you claim to have close fellowship with that God while you walk in the darkness, you're obviously a liar. If you step back, you'll see that we, we can't separate who God is from what God does. John has told us in verse 5 that God is light. But here in verse 7, do you notice he says something slightly different? He says that God is in the light. That is to say, God's character, his perfection, it is on display in his works in the world. The truth here, according to John, isn't just something to believe, but at the end of verse 6, it's something that we practice. God is light and he is in the light. God is truth and he practices truth. And so that means that anyone who is with him, anyone in close fellowship with him, anyone walking with him is going to walk in the light as well. Right? When we say God is light, that is not some theological abstraction. That's a truth that John expects will shape your Monday morning. Right? This is what we saw back in the book of Leviticus, Right? That God's people are called not simply to believe in him, but to reflect his character. To show the world what he's like. His image, his imprint should be evident in us. So we read back in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 to 2. It says there, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? It's the same idea in our passage for this morning. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And so his people must walk in the light. This truth, this light of God must percolate down deep into us so that it comes out of us in our words, in our deeds, in our love, in, in John's words, in the way that we walk. That's why the call for believers there in verse 7 is we should walk in the light. John doesn't actually give us a ton of specifics about what that means, but it's clear that he's calling us to godliness, to embracing in our conduct the way that God himself is light and in the light. And here he's again in lockstep with the Apostle Paul and what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church. He said, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, 
that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Like the call here that Paul is giving to the church is to put away all kinds of sin and immorality. These things, he says, are inappropriate for the people of God. Why? Well, skip down a few verses in Ephesians 5, verse 8. He tells us. He says, you need to live this way. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. You see, brothers and sisters, being united to Christ by faith, being brought into God's family, involves a transfer so deep that it goes down all the way to the level of your basic identity. Before, Paul says, at one time, you weren't just in darkness, though you were that. He says you were darkness. But now in the Lord, because of him, not because of anything in you, you are light. And so what's the only way that makes sense for people to live, if that's true? Paul says, walk in the light. He says the same thing John says. Let your conduct, let your speech, let your thinking, let your loving, let it all be characterized, he says, by what is right and good and true and pleasing to the Lord. He says, take no part in the works of darkness, all those things that are shameful and unfruitful, hidden in the shadows. So Christian, back to our passage here in 1 John, are you walking in the light? Or are you walking in the darkness? Are there ways of living? Are there habits? Are there behaviors that you keep hidden in the darkness? Are there things that only your spouse sees? Or maybe only your family sees? If your life were exposed, if it was exposed for everyone to see, the way you spend your money, the way you consume alcohol, the way you talk to your spouse, the things you look at on the internet, the way you use your time. If all those things were exposed, if, if they were brought out into the light, would you be ashamed? Would you be exposed as someone very different than the person everyone thinks you are? The problem, of course, isn't that other people would think less of you. Right? The problem is that God is light. He sees. He knows. He exposes all things. John says there at the end of verse 7 that if we walk in the light, two things will result. He says we'll have fellowship with one another. Right? That might be a bit surprising. We expect John would say we'd have fellowship with God if we walk in the light, but after all, God is the one who's light. But here John's emphasizing the fact that when we walk in the light, we're brought into fellowship, into an intimate relationship, into a common purpose and a shared task, not just with God, but with all the other people who walk in the light. This is going to be an issue that John returns to later in his letter. 
The second result there in verse 7 of walking in the light is that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now that's interesting. Notice that walking in the light doesn't mean that we have no sin. In some ways, living in light of God's truth and revelation, it actually makes us seem more sinful. It's, it's more revealing. It makes our sins and our flaws more visible. Right? God's, God's light is like the light on one of those concave mirrors that women use for their makeup. Have you seen these horrifying things? Right? You look in it and suddenly your face turns into a World War I battleground. Right? Just trenches and, and bombshells everywhere. Right? It magnifies the light. It makes everything big. Right? God's light is like that. You don't look better in this light. You look worse. Every flaw, every visible is blemish. Every blemish is visible. And so what's to be done then with our sin? How can we as sinful people walk in the light? How can we stand that kind of exposure? Is there some resolution available to us other than simply hiding in the darkness and pretending that what's true about us isn't true. Well, John reminds us that there is there in verse 7. He says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ, the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross as our substitute in our place, John says, cleanses us from sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself our corruption, our condemnation. He, he took on himself the penalty and the punishment of anyone who would ever trust in him. And so now we are invited out of the darkness. If you will come into the light of God's revelation, if you will come into the light of God's revelation of himself in Christ, that stain that sin has left on your life, John says, will be washed away. It will be cleansed. And that leads us naturally to the second answer to the question we're asking. Right? If God is light, then how should we live? He says we should walk in the darkness. And the second thing for us to see is that we should be honest about our sin. Look there in verses 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, John seems to be addressing a claim of the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. It seems that they were in some way claiming to be without sin. It could be that they were claiming they had some sort of special knowledge, some insight that destroyed the sinful nature in them. It could be that they were claiming to have reached a higher level of spiritual existence where they now lived in sinless perfection. It could be they were teaching that the body didn't really matter. That the only thing that really matters in, in the end is the soul or the spirit. And so the sinful things they were doing with their body didn't really count. But whatever form this boast took, John is saying that it's born out of self-deceit. It's a claim that shows that the truth is not in us. It's a claim that makes God out to be a liar. He has said that we are sinners. And so if we say we have no sin... 
we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. We make God out to be a liar there in verse 10. John's saying, if the truth were in you, if you understood what it means that God is light, if you had any insight into his holiness and his purity and his perfection, if you grasped some small sliver of what it is that God wants for his people, if you knew what it was to have this spotlight shining into every corner of your life, if you'd ever really looked at your face in that mirror, you would never conclude, yeah, I'm doing great. I look like a movie star in this light. No, you would acknowledge the truth that you have sinned and that you are a sinner. It seems to me that our society has a complicated relationship with this idea. In some ways, we are really good at identifying the sins of other people. Right? We see very clearly the sins of our political opponents. We're beginning to get really good at seeing the sins of people in the past. We would never say that those people are without sin. I think we're also getting good at a, a kind of self-flagellating, self-recrimination. It's kind of fashionable. It seems almost honorable to, to blame ourselves for all sorts of environmental and social evils. Right? Even if we've only personally contributed to them in, in a small way. It's okay to acknowledge that our physical bodies fall short. That, that we have love handles and thinning hair. That you've committed the unpardonable sin of eating junk food or genetically modified foods. You can beat yourself up over those things and people will have a kind of odd respect for you. And so in light of that, we launch out on all sorts of schemes of self-atonement. We have solutions to those kinds of problems. We devote ourselves to making sure that the proper political ideology prevails. We offset our carbon footprint. We try to be anti-racist. We eat organic food. We hit the gym and we feel better. We feel cleansed. We feel good about ourselves. We're okay at admitting that we fall short in some specific ways, but I think we're made very uncomfortable by the idea that there's something wrong with us at the deepest level of who we are. That in fact we're not good. That we shouldn't fundamentally esteem ourselves. That what God says about us is true. We are sinners. I think we're uncomfortable with that because we don't know how to solve that problem. If I'm a sinner at the deepest level of my being, if I'm given to selfishness and weakness and immorality, how do I go about fixing that problem? If I'm the problem, how can I also be the solution? Right? There's no charity that I can give to, no, no high-intensity intervals I can perform at the gym. There's no sign to put in my front yard that's going to fix that problem. And so sometimes it's just easier to pretend we think it doesn't exist. But notice what John says there in verse 9. If we confess our sin, if we agree with God's assessment of us, if we step into the light, if we drag out of the darkness everything we're tempted to hide there, John says two things will be true. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First, John says he 
will forgive our sins. Uh, The word picture here is that sin creates a debt that we cannot pay. And here John is telling us that God is willing and able to cancel that debt. Right? He's the one to whom this debt is owed, and so he has every right to simply forgive it, to, to wipe it off the books. John 2 says there in verse 9 that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The picture here, as it was at the end of verse 7, is that sin leaves a kind of stain on our souls. It pollutes, it corrupts, it corrodes. But again, God is willing and able to cleanse us, John says, from all of that. He says, all unrighteousness there in verse 9. Not a partial cleansing, not a sort of buff and polish of the exterior, but John says he's able to cleanse us utterly, completely from all unrighteousness. He is willing and able to expunge that stain and to purify us at the deepest level. The blood of Christ acts like the most wonderful bleach for our souls, transforming what was foul and dingy into something that is bright and pure. And friend, in order to take hold of this marvelous gift, this forgiveness, this cleansing, John says what you need to do is confess your sin. He's not saying that that's a way to earn God's salvation, right? Confession, to be clear, is not some sort of act that pays off our debt. It's not something we do in order to wash our soul. Rather, it is an acknowledgement that we can't solve our problem on our own. Confession of sin agrees with God's evaluation of us, and it despairs of any other way of trying to be right with him. Look, if there's no forgiveness of sin, if there is, in fact, no way to be cleansed, then as I see it, you have one of two options. One is to simply deny that you have any sin, because what good does it do you to say otherwise? Right? That would just simply mean there's no hope. Right? If there's no salvation, then we'd better hope there's no sin. The other option is self-atonement. Right? This is the path that every other religion in the world will take you on. And I think most of our secular society will take you on it as well. The idea is that karma is coming for you. The judgment of history is coming for you. The the judgment of your children when they grow up to be adults, it's coming for you. And so you'd better get to work. You'd better try to offset the bad with as much good as possible. But friend, God calls us to something so much better, to an honest confession of sin. Christian, God calls you to walk in the light. And so if you're living in the dark, if you're hiding sin and shameful secrets, drag it out into the light. You don't have to live like there's no hope, like there's no cleansing, like there's no forgiveness. You don't have to pretend to be better than you are, that you don't have sin, that you don't need cleansing. You don't have to to try to atone for it on your own. Listen to what John says here. Confess your sin to God. And if you've been hiding something in the dark, you're going to need to tell someone else as well. A brother, a sister in the church who can help you. If you don't know who to talk to, you can talk to me or any other one of the elders. 
in the end, you're going to have to choose what's most important to you. The cleansing and the forgiveness that God offers you or the appearance of holiness, the facade that you've been maintaining. Look at what's true of God there in verse 9. Look what makes this remedy for sin possible. He says there that God is faithful. Right? The idea here is that God is committed to the promises that he's made. He has said that he will provide forgiveness for his people through the blood of Christ, and he will do it. He is light. In him is no darkness at all. He is faithful. You don't need to worry he's going to change his mind. You don't need to worry that he's going to fail to deliver on what he said he's going to do. There's no tricks here. There are no games. There's no uncertainty. John says God is faithful. And he says there in verse 9 that he is just. Now, how can that be? How can forgiveness be just? Right, if a judge were to let a criminal go without punishment, we would say that's unjust. If a, if a bank simply forgave someone's debts for no good reason, we would think the shareholders would say that's unjust. But friends, God's plan is not to let your debt go unpaid. His plan is not to let your sin go unpunished. Rather, your debt was paid by the Lord Jesus himself on the cross. Your punishment was endured by the Lord Jesus himself on the cross. And so there is none left for you. Justice has been satisfied. In fact, now God would be unjust if he didn't forgive anyone who came to him on the basis of Christ's shed blood. Right? If a sentence has been carried out and a jail term has been served, a good judge won't go back and then later on inflict further punishment. The price has been paid. Right? If a debt has been satisfied, Right, if you've paid off your mortgage, a banker can't come back to you later and insist on further payment. And so our salvation rests on the, the twin foundations of God's faithfulness to his promises and his perfect justice, satisfied by the death of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's why we can walk in the light. That's the hope the certainty we have that when we bring our sin out of the darkness and into the light, when we confess things about ourselves that we wish weren't true, when we agree with God's assessment of us, we don't have to worry. We don't have to doubt about whether there's cleansing, about whether there's forgiveness available to us. That's what we come to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. A weekly reminder that we are sinners who have been forgiven and cleansed, that we are sinners who enjoy a new status, who are welcomed to come and have fellowship with God and with each other in the light. Here in the bread and in the cup, we have a visible reminder of the faithfulness and the justice of God, that the Lord Jesus has done everything to remedy our sin. The body and blood of Christ means that our forgiveness is rooted not in a whim, not in something that can change, but, but in the faithfulness and justice of God himself. 
Now, before we come to the table, it's appropriate that we take time to examine our lives. Paul encourages the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see how that's appropriate in light of what we've been thinking about this morning? We don't want to walk in the darkness of a lack of self-reflection, a lack of self-examination, but we want by God's help, by the power of his spirit, to shine a light into every corner of our soul and to drag out whatever we find there that's not pleasing to the Lord, to confess it to him, to own it, and to seek his cleansing and forgiveness. The Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and who have trusted in Christ, who have demonstrated that commitment by obeying Christ's command to be baptized and who are connected to a gospel-preaching church through membership. The Lord's invitation to his table is a gracious one. It's extended to you not on the basis of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So to be clear, as we examine ourselves, the Lord's Supper, his table, is not a performance review. This is not a, a reward given to those who have had a particularly good week. But this is a meal for sinners who have been saved by grace. Sinners who have confessed their sin and who have enjoyed his just and faithful forgiveness. With that said, the Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, then this meal isn't for you, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward, uh, we would encourage you to Use the time that you have to think about your need for salvation, to think about your need for cleansing from guilt. We would love nothing more than to welcome you to the Lord's table with us at some future time. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if your life is marked by walking in the darkness of sin and hatred for your brother and sister, then you have to do what Christians do, and that is come to the light. Confess it to the Lord. Turn your back on it. And only then come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for sinners, but it's a meal for repentant sinners. And so maybe the best way to apply what John tells us here in 1 John 1 is to take time to confess our sins to the Lord. Let's do that now together. We'll have a moment for silent, personal confession. I'll lead us then in a corporate confession of sin And then we'll sing and celebrate together. Let's pray.